we have found that the real treatment, the real acupuncture, is really not that much more effective than the placebo interventions. But it is the new methodology for testing acupuncture and certainly would be the most appropriate in terms of thinking about investigating long COVID. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. East Asian medicine is not one monolithic thing. It's a fecund ecosystem that's diverse, heterogeneous, and competitive. If you look through the writing, and especially the commentary that has been passed down over the years, you'll see doctors through history doing what we do today, arguing with each other, taking a stance on their point of view, and accusing those on the other side of malfeasance. Diversity trades on disagreement. It's the opposite of one right way. It stands in contrast to monocultural belief and offers surprising potency and potential, which naturally arises from variety. But the heterogeneity of diversity is hard. It's hard because it requires the capacity not only to tolerate that which is different, but to use those differences to thrive. So how do we bridge the gap? I suspect we bridge it with empathy. To have the capacity to seek with genuine interest to understand what others believe that you don't believe, what they fear that you don't fear what they want, that you don't want. Empathy does not mean we drop our perspective or our stance. If anything, we hold it more firm so as to know better the ground upon which we stand. And with that grounding, it's possible to see and hear another from their own point of view. On a good day, it's an opportunity to learn something new create bonds where previously there were walls, and most of all, learn something more about our medicine so that we can be of more service to those who visit our clinics looking for help with the medicine and the methods that we have to offer. Our medicine did not arise from Petri dish experimentation, nor from the A-B testing of control and variable. Our medicine It arose through the observation of nature and the application of principles that seem to model how life and vitality unfold. It's not that the methods and practice of modern research can't be helpful. It can. But our medicine does not easily lend itself to double-blind studies or protocolized interventions. In a moment, we're going to get into a discussion with Bo Anderson on COVID-19, what has been learned about applying conventional research models to acupuncture, and how pragmatic research philosophy can help us and other healthcare practitioners better understand the effectiveness of East Asian medicine. It's coming up right after Shop Talk, the clinical nuts and bolts portion of the digital campfire here. Shop Talk is all practical material on treating patients using acupuncture or herbs, along with a smattering of the how-to of running that fantastic machine for social good and change, 
your practice. But first, a word from the folks who make it possible for you to enjoy Geological. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, 
Being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Hi there, Michelle Grasick here, founder of Acupuncture Marketing School. Today, we're going to talk about target market, your ideal patient avatar, and what on earth that means, and copywriting, and how they intersect to create great marketing. Now, target market gets a bad reputation. I've been teaching marketing to fellow acupuncturists for almost nine years, and I know for sure that target market is an unsexy topic. A lot of people tell me that they feel like identifying their target market is a theoretical exercise only, that they have no idea how target market should actually be applied to their marketing. In other words, how is it practical? What should they do with that information? So today let's talk about how these foundational concepts make your marketing both more effective and more efficient. So target market is, of course, as I'm sure you're familiar with, a big picture description of a group of people that you want to become your patients. And ideal patient avatar is a detailed, nitty-gritty description of a single individual who fits within your target market. And I'm going to call the ideal patient avatar the IPA from here on out just to keep it short and sweet. So I recommend starting by defining your target market, the big picture, and then get more specific with your IPA. And generally, when you define your target market, it's pretty broad. Usually, people simply list a lot of demographic information. But to make your target market feel more like real people instead of just statistics, you can think about first defining the symptoms or conditions that you want to treat, and then ask yourself, what do people who have these symptoms have in common? What are their shared struggles or pain points? their shared goals and experiences or desired outcome, okay? So that helps give a little life to your target market. Then the next step is to define your IPA, which again is that very specific description of a single person. And this is where the magic really comes in so that you can apply it to your marketing. Your IPA could be a real person, or it could be an imaginary person, or some combination of both. But of course, the goal here is that they are your ideal, the most perfect, compliant, wonderful patient that you can imagine for your practice. Maybe you have a real patient right now who is just delightful. You enjoy treating the symptoms that they come to see you for. Um, they feel better on a regular basis. You enjoy them as a patient and as a person. They follow your advice. They never miss a treatment, et cetera, et cetera. In a nutshell, if you had 40 of this patient per week, a full schedule, you'd be thrilled. That's what we're going for in defining your IPA. 
Now, I often get the question, can I have more than one ideal patient avatar or more than one target market? Absolutely. And I think that in reality, most of us do. We usually have more than one group of people that we're targeting. That's normal. And there are ways to implement this effectively on your website and in your other marketing. But for the sake of today's conversation, especially if this is your first deep dive into these concepts, I recommend just starting out with one IPA. And then when you feel comfortable applying all of this to your marketing in a practical way, which we'll talk about in a second, then you can branch out and create others if you'd like. I wouldn't go crazy and create like six IPAs. Uh, It might make your marketing a little bit overwhelming, but two I think is totally reasonable. For today, we're just keeping it simple. Again, We want to get really detailed with your description of this imaginary or maybe partially imaginary person, and there's an important reason for this. So first, give your IPA a name, and then think about questions like, what do they like to read? How do they spend their extra income? Do they have pets and what are their names? What charities do they support? How do they like to exercise? Do they like to spend time outdoors, et cetera, et cetera? The goal here is to make your IPA feel like a real person to you so that you can speak directly to them every time you're writing any kind of marketing. So let's say you're a fertility specialist and you're writing a section of your website explaining how many treatments are usually recommended for fertility. And imagine that your IPA, we'll call them Sam, is sitting in front of you in your office asking you this question in their voice. How many treatments do I need for fertility and why? And then answer the question as if you were speaking directly to Sam. And when you do this, you're going to come at it from the angle of helping Sam specifically understand why this number of treatments is important, why they should commit to it and prioritize acupuncture, and discussing the positive outcome or the goal that could result if they follow through with your treatment protocol. And when you write like this, answering questions or explaining things as if you're speaking directly to your IPA, that is compelling copywriting that gets the attention of not just Sam, but other people like Sam, other people who have the same questions, symptoms, doubts, and desired outcome from treatment with you. Once you know your IPA inside and out, attracting your ideal patients becomes a much more natural process. I mentioned copywriting at the start of this discussion because it's often the easiest place to start writing and answering questions with your IPA in mind. But of course, this concept can be applied to all parts of your marketing, including, for example, creating your brand or knowing what to share or create on social media. Simply apply the concept when creating your branding, for example, think about what would appeal to your IPA, what colors, images, what kind of vibe, for lack of a better word, would really resonate with this person and draw them in. And when you're thinking about what kind of social media content to create from what articles to share on your Facebook page or what reels to create for Instagram, ask yourself, what interests my IPA? What questions do they need answered? What doubts do they need removed? to move them along that journey from being a follower to a patient? And how can I articulate that in a way that speaks directly to them? 
So at this point, when I teach this, there are usually a couple big questions that come up. So I want to touch on those quickly to dispel any fears that might hold you back from using this and really applying it in your marketing. And those two concerns are, one, what if I define my target market or IPA incorrectly so that it doesn't work when I apply it to my marketing? In other words, just what if I do this wrong? And two, Will I be scaring some patients away if I make my marketing message too specific, if I niche down too much? So let's talk about both of these. If you're worried about applying your target market or IPA incorrectly and not getting the right results, I would say that there's really no wrong way to do this. Getting more specific with your marketing almost always makes it more effective. So doing target market and IPA worksheets or exercises and then implementing them is usually going to refine and improve your marketing compared to not doing it at all. In marketing, we always say, if you're trying to speak to everyone, you're not really speaking to anyone. In other words, a broad, watered-down message, trying to get the attention of your whole audience, usually grabs the attention of no one because nobody realizes that your message is for them. They're sort of unclear. They don't know if it applies to them. However, when you get a little bit specific and speak directly to your people, your message is going to be more compelling for those people. And yes, you are speaking to a smaller group, but a greater percentage of people in that group are likely to sit up and notice and take action, which in our case, taking an action would be something like making an appointment or emailing with questions. And I think the first time that everyone does these exercises, they feel a little clunky, and this is normal. This doesn't mean you did it wrong. I recommend repeating these exercises, you know, defining your target market and your IPA once every six months to a year. And over time, both will become more and more clear to you. It will feel easier. Like anything, you just get better with practice. And I generally recommend thinking about marketing as an experiment. This takes a ton of pressure off of you to try and do it perfectly. Everything that we're doing in marketing is with the goal of collecting data so that we can do it better next time. A new marketing plan does not have to be perfect to get good results. And then the second concern, if you are worried that you're limiting yourself by niching down or getting too specific with your marketing message, while that makes sense theoretically, it's not what I've seen borne out in reality. So it's very likely that even if you get specific on your website, focusing on, for example, fertility or athletes, you're probably still going to see people from patient referrals who are not your IPA or not even within your target market. Let's say you decide to focus on athletes and orthopedic acupuncture. So you're focusing on the weekend warriors, helping people get healthy so they can participate in the sports that they love. Um, and that's the focus of your landing page of your website, speaking to that person. And you help one of them heal his knee pain. And he has a friend who says to him, I have digestive issues. And I read that acupuncture can help with that. What do you think? Of course, your patient is going to say, yes, you should totally see my acupuncturist. They're amazing. 
So their friend is probably going to come see you, very likely, even if they land on your website homepage and it's all about recovering from injury so they can continue athletic passions. That friend is probably not going to abandon you when they see that because they have a referral from someone that they trust. And a referral from someone we trust is a very warm touch point. They're unlikely to try to search for someone who specializes in digestion because they would rather just see you. They have a connection to you through their friend. So you are still going to get plenty of people who decide to come see you for things outside of your target market, even if you niche down. So please don't worry about that too much, that it's going to reduce your number of patients who are actually interested in coming to see you. I think that's not what most people experience when they implement this. What they see instead is a higher rate of action taking, again, making an appointment or calling with questions from the people within their target market because your website is really grabbing their attention. They realize that you understand them. I hope that this was really helpful, not just for clarifying your target market and ideal patient avatar, but also helping you see that these concepts can have a big positive impact on your marketing, as well as how to apply them in a practical way. If you still need help with your target market and putting it into practice, I have an online course called Acupuncture Marketing School. I walk you through these concepts step by step. The ultimate goal, of course, is for you to get more patience, and we do that through creating a strong, clear brand and a marketing strategy tailored to your ideal patients. So if you didn't have much marketing education in acupuncture school or you just don't know where to start, this is a great choice. For Chiological listeners, I'm offering a discount code for $200 off. The code is Chiological200, and there will be a link in the show notes with the discount code if you'd like to take a look at Acupuncture Marketing School. It's been wonderful spending time with you today. Of course, if you have any questions, feel free to send me an email. I'm always happy to chat with you. Michelle at michellegrassic.com. Anderson, welcome to Geological. Oh, good morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Delighted to have you, and thank you so much for joining us. This is a special COVID series that we're doing. It's been three years now, three long years. Boy, some of the longest years I think I've lived during the, the time of COVID. And it seems like a really good time to come together, look back at where we've been, look at what we're facing, and take a look at how our medicine might be able to help with the future. Definitely. You know, it's been a very interesting years, especially for the East Asian medicine community, both in the U.S. and globally. Yes. Now, you're an acupuncturist. You're also kind of a research geek. You're, you're friends with uh, Lisa Taylor Swanson, one of my classmates. Yeah. That, that's right. Um, my early history, I started off actually as a bench scientist. I, my PhD is in molecular biology. Uh, it was always, you know, a little uh, curious about things that science couldn't explain. And my early childhood history in Hong Kong and uh, an exposure to a lot of 
Um, Chinese culture um, led to a fascination with acupuncture and East Asian medicine, and eventually I retrained and became a licensed acupuncturist, but combined everything together. So I use my research skills as I apply them to East Asian medicine. You know, it seems we don't really throw anything away in our life. We might compost it, we might turn it into something else, we might repurpose it. Uh, but it, it, it's amazing how you live long enough and acquire different skills, the ways that things can go together. So molecular biology, is that correct? That, that, that was your original PhD? Yeah, that's right. Um, I, my undergrad is in agriculture, and I wound up then going on to a doctoral degree looking at a bacterial disease of sheep. I grew up in Australia. There are a lot of sheep in, in Australia. Um, so we developed actually the first uh, genetically engineered veterinary vaccine for this particular bacterial disease in sheep. I then went on to uh, uh, move into the field of plant molecular biology, um, once again working with pathogens, this time viruses that infect plants and genetically engineering plants to improve their resistance to viral infection. You said that you grew up in Hong Kong, so you, you've had these other influences. Can you help me connect the dots a little bit on how you go? I mean, it's fascinating, right? You're, you're working with biology at a very molecular level, and that, that's one way to really work with the life force. But like, how did you get to acupuncture from that? Was there some kind of inciting incident, or what happened? Well, you know, I, I think the core is my feeling that, well, first that science believes that it has a legacy on the truth, which to me as a young scientist, um, I, you know, I, I, nobody has a legacy on the truth. So that, that's a fundamental core belief. But also, you know, I could see the limitations of the scientific method. So, you know, I've always had that belief. And then my experience in Hong Kong as a young girl at the age of six years old and my family lived there for a year and my father ended up living in Hong Kong for 30 years and he speaks fluent Mandarin. I spent a lot of time there and I also had acupuncture and took Chinese herbal medicine in my very early 20s. And I think it just became a system that had so much uh, tradition and uh, thousands of years of observational and um, anecdotal evidence that it became kind of a perfect route for me to explore something that was outside of science, but also had a very good educational and licensing infrastructure. It was a legitimate profession when I came to the US. And I thought that's something that was very attractive to me. It had all of the kind of structural, infrastructural features of science in terms of education and you know, licensing and a structure for practice, but it was based on a paradigm that was completely different. And I think it was, for me, it was the perfect antidote to living in the world of science, which I never felt was complete. So it, it's interesting to me. So often, it seems in our trade, we will compare ourselves to Western medicine or Western science for that matter and go, well, we're very different, we're holistic. And yet, when I think about how I practice in my clinic, 
I feel like I work as a scientist. You know, we're supposed to make diagnoses, but I don't really call them diagnoses anymore. It's been a long time since I've called them diagnoses. I feel like I'm constantly working with a hypothesis. I've got an idea. I think I understand what I see, but I'm not sure. I'm going to test it by treating it, seeing what the response is. And, and so it seems to me that, that, the, that the perspective of a scientist and the perspective of a practitioner, correct me if I'm wrong, they're actually not that far apart. They're very, very similar. Yeah, I really agree with that statement. Uh, you know, I think um, one thing that has really struck me about the way in which we educate uh, East Asian medicine practitioners is that obviously there's a significant component of biomedicine. So we want them to have that core of knowledge and be able to partner with biomedical providers to meet the best interests of patients. But in addition to that, you know, circling back to what you said, the process by which we diagnose and come up with a treatment principle and then a treatment strategy in East Asian medicine is very logical and sequential. And TCM, the patent diagnostic system, is also very similar to the critical thinking process that scientists use in coming up with hypotheses and deciding how to test them. In fact, you know, one of the things that also surprised me in my own training in East Asian medicine is how hard it is. It, it's extremely difficult to memorize all of the information that you need to be a good practitioner. And, you know, I think that's a really misunderstood aspect of being an acupuncturist. I, most people, I think, think that the training involved to become a licensed acupuncturist is pretty minimal. But in actual fact, as we all know, it's a very lengthy and difficult program. Yes. Well, I, I suspect the difficulty comes from, at least it has for me, from the fact that we are learning, we have to learn, to look through a completely different set of lenses at how reality works. Completely. It's not that our Western point of view is incorrect. It's not. It's a perspective. It will allow us to see certain things, but much like you know, if you're, if you're working with a microscope and you want to see certain things, you can put a filter on it, right? Or like if you're working with a, working with a camera, you can put a filter on it. You can see certain things, you take out other things. And it seems to me that the filters that we have, the lenses that we use to, to practice East Asian medicine gives us the capacity to see things that would otherwise not be seen. And then we can do something about it because we actually have treatments for that. However, it requires being able to see through those lenses and prisms. And that takes a lot of time. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, you know, I, science is very focused on what you can see and touch. That is the, you know, most fundamental basis of reality. And then, you know, there's a lot of mental constructs that have been developed that also scientists trust um, quite a bit. But in East Asian medicine and other traditional healing systems, there is a much greater emphasis on almost um, a way of thinking that's more aligned with the natural world. And I've found as a practitioner that the longer I've practiced and the more I think about the concepts of East Asian medicine, the more I see that it's very 
logical. It's, in a sense, I often ask myself the question, well, how could it not be like that? To me, it's more of a question that would oppose a basic principle in East Asian medicine rather than, I think, what a lot of the biomedical world thinks, which is how could we you know, possibly believe this way of looking at the body and you know, pathology? So there's, there's a big irony there. Well, yes. Well, and for sure, I, I always come back to, well, judge by the results you get. The results tell you something. You know, for sure, if we do something and we don't get the results, okay, that we were missing something. But if the results hold water, oh man, now you really have to change your thinking. Like, how does that work? Right. Well, that's where I would step in with my scientific hat and say that for practitioners in, in, while, while practicing, you know, we see a lot of patients that improve, but it's a highly biased sample. So all the people for whom the treatments were not effective probably are not coming back. And we have a biased sample in the first place of people that would even consider East Asian medicine, you know, to treat a particular condition that they're struggling with and may well be doing other things that are also contributing to the healing process, like eating a good diet and getting more sleep and doing regular exercise. So I think judging the effectiveness of our own medicine on that basis is very flawed. Now, however, you know, we know that uh, acupuncture in particular has un been under intense scrutiny using widely accepted scientific methods like the randomized control trial. And it has stood up to that level of scrutiny and been demonstrated to be efficacious and effective uh, for many different conditions. So to me, that is the real proof of the pudding, especially considering that most of the clinical trials that have been undertaken with acupuncture have used a scientific methodology that is actually not well suited to the therapeutic intervention itself. So for example, it, these trials don't use uh, East Asian medical diagnostic principles. They don't individualize the treatments and often other things like dosage is inadequate or not comparable to real world practice. But despite all of these ways in which it would have been quite understandable for acupuncture to be found to be not effective, that hasn't been the case. And in fact, uh, the re this research is really the single greatest force that is pushing East Asian medicine and especially acupuncture into the mainstream biomedical clinics. And we're seeing a lot more referral by other healthcare providers. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. 
The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. You know, I'd like to take that thought about looking at the research and, you know, for sure it's the gold standard that we use here in the West. And, and for sure, acupuncture, it doesn't fit it really well. So that when it shows that we've got results, it's like, well, gosh, we're only using half of what we got. So there's that. But what I want to come back to is looking at COVID and talking about COVID. And I'd love to get your perspective, both as a clinical practitioner and as a researcher, and aim that at not so much where COVID has been, but where we are with COVID now, and especially treating people in our clinics with either symptoms of long COVID. Often, I mean, we're very familiar in East Asian medicine that after a viral infection of some sort, people often have lingering ongoing issues. Otherwise, Shao Chai Hutong wouldn't have been invented. So, you know, it's not a foreign idea to us that there could be lingering effects from some kind of viral infection. Love to get your thoughts on long COVID. And, and also something that we've been hearing a lot lately is, well, is someone suffering from long COVID or are they suffering from some kind of vaccine reaction? And how to parse that, if it's even worth parsing. Yeah, I, I have been deeply immersed in uh, the use of Chinese herbal medicine to treat both acute COVID and everything that happened in 2020 and 2021. And now, um, you know, that we're more adjusted to COVID in our lives, um, ongoing acute affections. And as you've mentioned, uh, the sequelae following that, which after three months is probably classified as long COVID. And then more recently, the use of acupuncture, uh, especially, you know, for long COVID. But as you pointed out, and I think this is a part that is especially important in understanding the application of Chinese herbal medicine, is that China, a lot of the way in which Chinese herbal medicine developed was actually based on these types of respiratory disorders and associated epidemics. So the Shanghan Lun, the Wen Bing, you know, these ancient classical Chinese medicine texts and the Chinese herbal medicine formulas in those, which, as we know, there's hundreds of them, developed focused around these types of disorders. So it was sort of natural and logical fit that Chinese herbal medicine would be one of the more reliable treatments that would have been considered in the early stages of the pandemic, where we essentially had no biomedical solutions to this problem. And then, of course, uh, even though Chinese herbal medicine was used extensively in China uh, during the early stages of the pandemic, and I believe it's still being used, examples of that include that 
while people were in lockdown in China, they not only received food parcels, but in those food parcels were their Chinese herbs. So everybody was getting these. And as we know, a lot of that information, of course, went global. The formulas that they were using, the more common diagnostic patterns, that information was disseminated globally. And we saw a lot of that information come into the US and be disseminated through continuing education providers, the herbal medicine companies themselves, but most importantly, through the Lantern Journal and through the herbal medicine company eLotus. And we had the involvement of many Chinese herbal medicine scholars like John Chen, Heiner Fruhoff, Volker Scheid, who really uh, stepped up to disseminate reliable information to help practitioners all over the world. And, you know, I especially saw it in the U.S., better know how to treat their patients and what sort of formulas, you know, they might consider in individual herbs for modification. The interesting thing about this, we actually did a study doing a survey and interviewing licensed acupuncturists who were prescribing Chinese herbal medicine for COVID patients. This was all sort of going on in the background. In fact, many of the participants in our study thought in hindsight that they had been treating COVID patients in late 2019, which is, you know, really quite possible. And using predominantly Chinese herbal medicine, especially after it was known that COVID-19 was in the US. And of course, people switched to telehealth, of which Chinese herbal medicine is very compatible. So there was a, a very high level of usage, even though it was kind of completely under the radar. I don't mean in terms of legality, but just that all this was happening and we, you know, in the panic of lockdown and everything that was associated with the early stage of the pandemic, we really kind of didn't even have a grip on you know, how acupuncturists were um, using Chinese herbal medicine extensively at that stage. Well, it seems to me, regardless of illness that someone has, we would still fall back on our fundamentals. Yeah, absolutely. The research on Chinese herbal medicine is of kind of limited value to practitioners because, as you say, practitioners will go back to what I call first principles or treat what you see. So they will use their same approach to diagnosing and treatment that they would use with any patient that walked in with any condition. And so when it came to COVID patients, they diagnosed according to the same methodology they would if somebody came in with the flu or, you know, the common cold or any other condition that whose symptoms were similar to what we were seeing with COVID. And that demonstrates, you know, both the history, we've seen these types of things before, we have uh, treatment methodologies that are appropriate, but also the fundamental principles of the medicine and its great adaptability and flexibility. And as I always say, when I'm talking about East Asian medicine to a biomedical audience, you know, we can treat anything. I'm not saying it's effective for everything, but there is a diagnostic and treatment approach for anything that a patient walks through the door with. 
For many years, I ran a student exchange program between Pacific College of Health and Science, previously known as Pacific College of Oriental Medicine in New York City and Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. And we would bring medical students from Einstein down to the Pacific College Clinic and they would shadow our senior students and sort of see how East Asian medicine was really practiced clinically. One of the really common things they would say is, wow, you're so lucky you have a treatment for anything that a patient walks in with. We so often have patients for whom we either don't have a treatment or we've given them treatments and they're not effective and we're kind of at a loss of what to do next. Yes, well, I'm sure all of y'all out there listening, we've had the experience of giving a treatment, having it not be effective. For sure, that's just part of being a practitioner. And yes, the thing that's wonderful about Chinese medicine is that we can have an idea about what we're seeing, we can treat it based on the response that we get that can confirm or deny what we're thinking about. And then we can switch and pivot and change things because the idea is not to find a thing and get rid of the thing. The idea is to engage the process of what's happening with somebody. And if we can more deeply understand it, then we probably will be more effective in treating it. And this is where I think the Lantern did a tremendous service for us. Because when COVID first came out, and this is still available, by the way, you can go to the Lantern and still download this. They keep updating it. It's a fantastic resource on treating COVID. And it was not, okay, here's the formulas that you use to treat COVID. It was a look into how have Chinese medicine practitioners over the course of time looked at treating some really strange pathogens. And it wasn't so much a how-to as it was a how-to-think. Here are some things to look at. Here are some things to consider. Here are some principles and perspectives within our medicine that you might not have heard about but could be useful. And, and I thought that was phenomenal. Number one, the scholarship was, was terrific. But beyond that, being able to do exactly what you were just saying, Bo, to be able to look and see what's going on and make sense of it and then craft something. Yeah, we have that. Chinese medicine practitioners are great tinkerers. Yeah, and I, I think that gets to the heart of why the research is so limited. So, you know, we talked about some of the issues associated with the research earlier that, you know, that they don't use Chinese medicine diagnosis, um, the treatments are not individualized. But if we drill down a little bit further to the research that's been done on Chinese herbal medicine, the, often it was just on a single formula and there was no ability to change the formula as the participants in the clinical trial, as their presentation might have changed, their symptoms might have changed. And of course, we know with COVID that the symptoms change frequently and very rapidly. So when we talked to uh, the participants in our study, 
you know, we asked them a lot about, did you know about the research? Did you use the research? And the majority of them knew about the research, but they didn't use the research because of these types of limitations. But interestingly, they did use the research to better understand the virus itself and the way that it actually gets into the body and infects the body and some of the symptomology like the cytokine storm, these aspects they found useful and helpful, but the actual application of you know single formulas and whether they were effective as compared to a placebo control was not helpful. And when you compare that to the type of information that was disseminated through E. Lotus and the Lantern Journal, it, it's just, you know, there's a world of difference in terms of depth, um, nuance, and the understanding of, you know, the intuitive, but also the highly technical aspects of being a good Chinese herbalist. Yeah, it was a real, in a sense, you know, and forgive me for this term, but the real search was, research was a real dumbing down of the practice of Chinese herbal medicine. It, it certainly can be. And look, I, I can be mentally lazy. You know, if, I, if something comes along and, hey, use this to take care of that, um, there's a part of me that'll want to go there. <laughs> so I, I understand that. It really takes some mental firepower and some capacity to sit with not having stuff figured out yet to be able to really take and use the principles that, that are the core of our medicine and to be able to use it effectively. So there's that. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to, to speak to that very point because one of the impetuses for doing the research we did and then it was really uh, reinforced by the outcomes, which was the interviews with individual practitioners who were deeply involved in prescribing Chinese herbs for their patients. These practitioners went above and beyond, you know, for all the reasons that you said, we'd never encountered this before. We were in the middle of a public health emergency. They had patients that were on death's door. I mean, this was very high stakes. And these practitioners went above and beyond in terms of obviously prescribing herbs, but driving the herbs to the patient's door to make sure that the patient got the right formula at the right time because the symptom pictures were changing so quickly. We also know that there was a global shortage of Chinese herbs due to supply chain issues, but also because of the huge demand. And a lot of the formulas and individual herbs were, were selling out. These practitioners would meet on street corners in New York City to exchange herbs to try and be able to fill formulas for individual patients based on getting uh, individual herbs that they didn't have in their pharmacy or had run out of from other practitioners. So, you know, the other thing that they would say is, you know, along the lines of what you said, Michael, which is, I didn't know what to do. I tried this, you know, I I thought it was this thing. I thought this formula would work. I added this. I took out that. And I, I would wait to see what happened. And, you know, then I would modify and try something else. And they also talked about they were scared. They was scared for their patients. They were scared for themselves. And, in fact, one person we interviewed said that she 
saw many practitioners who just were like, yeah, I can't do this. It's, it's, you know, the stakes are too high. And I think that really underscored the courage of the practitioners that got in there and, you know, did the best that they could, utilizing all of the information that they could get their hands on and being willing to know that, they were going to make a mistake and they were going to have to modify something and try something out. Yeah, I mean, that takes a, you know, a certain type of person. And I have to say I was, you know, in such admiration for these practitioners who in many cases put their own health on the line for their patients. It does take courage. There's no doubt about it. And it takes a willingness to be wrong. Because when it comes to treating something like COVID, especially in the early days, I mean, these days, COVID, look, they're talking about taking the next booster and rolling it into, you know, the flu shot. So respiratory viruses, they change pretty quickly. Those things mutate. They're wind. Of course, they mutate quickly. They're wind, for God's sake. Chinese medicine tells us wind moves and changes quickly, which I think is why respiratory viruses, they do, they, they change rapidly, but Bloodborne viruses, you know, that's more solid, more yin. Those don't change very quickly at all. They, those mutate very slowly. But those wind pathogens, well, you know, Chinese medicine lets us know about that. So here we are with this, this wind pathogen. You've got to go at it directly with what you see. You've got to be strong enough. And what's the word that I'm searching for? Because it's hard to be secure in the midst of being insecure. That's that's a kind of seasoning that I think takes time. Well, I think the security, you know, what I heard from the practitioners was they had faith in the medicine. Well, there you go. But how do you have faith in the medicine unless you've used the medicine and it has shown you that it's trustworthy? And, and we get to tell a lovely story. Well, Zhang Zhongjing, you know, he like saved lots of people. Well, he was in the middle of it. And I think it's one thing to say we've got a medicine and a history that treats this and something completely different when we are in the middle of it. And it's not a story and it's not, you know, a nice thing that we tell ourselves or our patients, look, our medicine is old, it's treated a lot of different things. Yes, but to actually live through that, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Right. I don't know. I, I feel like people in their, you know, anxiety-ridden, fearful moments always went back to, look, this medicine's been around for thousands of years. A lot of what it actually developed around were diseases very similar to COVID. We used it to treat SARS. We used it to treat swine fever. This is going to work. I just have to figure out how to utilize it in a way that's effective for individual patients that I'm working with. I do not disagree at all. I, I'm completely in alignment. It's just that with COVID, the volume was turned up to 117 on a scale of 1 to 10. Definitely. And I think for the people that treated patients throughout the pandemic, I mean, it's probably deepened their knowledge and experience in a way that no other set of circumstances could have. And the other thing that I, I think has been a real opportunity, even though it's mired in you know controversy, is 
this has really put the spotlight on Chinese herbal medicine. Whether you think, you know, that that's the most ridiculous idea or not, there's a lot of research out there now that is demonstrating that Chinese herbal medicine is effective for COVID-19. And we also understand a lot about the mechanism because a lot of the research has been focused exactly on determining how these uh, herbal formulas and individual herbs are effective to actually kill the virus or to dampen down the uh, the cytokine storm to enhance immunity and um, decrease inflammation. So, you know, this has enormously accelerated uh, people's exposure and understanding to Chinese herbal medicine and also the, its legitimacy. I mean, I guess we could draw a parallel with when um, Nixon went to China and that New York Times journalist had an emergency appendectomy and put an article in the New York Times about acupuncture. I mean, that was, you know, a pivotal moment for acupuncture to really get into people's minds. I think, you know, we're seeing a similar thing for Chinese herbal medicine right now because of COVID. Well, and I suspect we have a real opportunity here, in particular with long COVID, because there's a fair amount of it out there. I know plenty of people who are still dramatically fearful about getting COVID, not so much because of having COVID, but because they might have long COVID. I've, I've, got, I've got friends I still can't see because they won't see me. You know, they're they're over the age of seventy, and they're and they're frightened of long COVID. So, let's turn the spotlight here for a moment on long COVID. That that seems like a tremendous opportunity for us in this particular moment. I'd love to get your thoughts on using our medicine to go after this. Yeah, I mean, I I see it as an opportunity, and there is a groundswell of you know interest among uh, East Asian medicine, especially acupuncture researchers. And it's you know if we focus on looking at acupuncture for long COVID, that's a much easier research project to get funding for, to get um, approval and funding to do research on Chinese herbal medicine is a much more tortured path, principally because each individual herb in a formula that you want to test has to be pre-approved by the FDA, and that is a lengthy process in and of itself. Acupuncture research, as we know, has been around for a long time, and the evolved approaches to doing that research that we call pragmatic trials. We've moved away from the randomized control trial. It's quite legitimate to not include a placebo intervention in an acupuncture clinical trial. And we really have the opportunity to look at acupuncture more authentically in respect to how it's practiced in real world clinics. And then we can bring in, as you mentioned earlier, Michael, other things that acupuncturists do. So, you know, that could be cupping or gua sha or moxibustion or any of the, uh, you know, wide number of different techniques that we would classify in the general family of acupuncture therapy. So there's a lot of opportunities. For people that may not be familiar with the kind of research that you just talked about, and I forget the term already that you just used, like practical or pragmatic. Okay. Because so often 
the control type research, controlled studies, is so considered the gold standard. I get it that the pragmatic is much more useful in our situation, but for listeners who might not be so familiar with that, can you tell us a little bit how the pragmatic research differs from the control group studies? Yeah, uh, so pragmatic research, really the father of pragmatic research was Hugh McPherson, who was a practitioner and researcher in the UK who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. But as we all recognize both researchers and uh, practitioners follow the research, the randomized controlled trial is flawed because it fundamentally compares acupuncture to a placebo control and is trying to zero right in on the uh, efficacy of the needles. So the placebo control is meant to provide everything that the participants who get real acupuncture get. So the practitioner-patient interaction, the relaxation time on the table, etc. Except instead of getting a real needle insertion, the acupuncture treatment they get is not meant to be non-therapeutic. Now, after years and years of doing those types of trials, we have found that the real treatment, the real acupuncture, is really not that much more effective than the placebo interventions. And that really was a difficult place in the sequence of acupuncture research to get past because, as you can well imagine, everybody then just started assuming that acupuncture is really just a placebo, you can put the needles anywhere, you know, you don't need to diagnose patients. It's, you know, really the, the capacity of the patient to just, you know, think that something is beneficial is going to happen. And of course, the pushback against that was, hey, you know, that's not how acupuncture is practiced in the real world. There are a lot of other things that uh, acupuncturists do. We also use very specific diagnostic techniques. Each patient is an individual. They get a different type of treatment, which may or may not involve a range of other therapeutic interventions at the same time, not to mention diet and lifestyle recommendations as certain exercises that might be recommended. So eventually, you know, that pushback was heard and it led on to the development of what we call pragmatic clinical trials. In these clinical trials, Patients uh, are recruited and then they are still randomized into different groups. But these different groups might be comparing, say, acupuncture to another a treatment intervention, for example, physical therapy or meditation or exercise or depending on what would be a, a relevant comparison for the particular condition under investigation. And the participants who were randomized into the acupuncture group would see acupuncturists who could treat them normally as they would any other patient in their clinic. So they could diagnose them, they could select points that were appropriate for individual patients, and in many of these trials, they could also incorporate other treatment approaches that they conventionally do, like e-stem or a gua sha or you know, cupping or whatever else might be deemed appropriate. And 
So what we're getting here is a much more authentic way of investigating acupuncture. Now, there are problems associated with those trials. I'm not sure if you really want me to delve into that now, um, but it is the new methodology for testing acupuncture and certainly would be the most appropriate in terms of thinking about investigating long COVID. That all makes sense to me because when I think about the experience that patients are having, they're coming to the acupuncturist, they're going to the chiropractor, they might be doing physical therapy. Most people, if they come to our office, they're probably seeing other practitioners as well. Why? Because the conventional system hasn't helped them. And so they're, they're still searching for something that might help. Real life is not a controlled study by any means at all. People are trying lots of different things at the same time. So, you know, there's that. Well, that therein, therein lies the power of randomization. So, you know, the reason, the, the biggest differentiator between observational research, which is things like case studies and where we do not randomize people into certain treatments, so the real purpose of that is all the things you mentioned, Michael. So, of course, patients who end up being participants in clinical trials are doing a lot of different things, regardless of whether they're open to complementary therapies or not. You know, they they have a very difficult boss, a lot of stress at work, or, you know, they have a lot of problems sleeping, They or they eat a great diet and get a lot of exercise, they regularly meditate, you know, it could be good things or, or deleterious things. When you randomize all your participants into the treatment groups, you're randomly assorting all of those background things. And so you effectively take those out of the picture. And so even though we talk about pragmatic research, we still randomize because we don't want those background things, be they helpful or deleterious, to influence our assessment of the outcome of the intervention under investigation. So that, that's a really important thing is that we still, in, a, in pragmatic research, have the power of randomization and put it into technical terms, we remove the impact of these confounding variables. That makes a lot of sense. That, and it really points to the power and usefulness of randomization. Back to long COVID, what kind of symptoms are you seeing, either from your own practice or from the research that you're doing? What does long COVID look like these days? Well, you know, I think we all know from, you know, stories we've heard, friends and family members that are struggling with this, that it's it's a very broad range of different types of symptoms, and it can impact people of all different ages, uh, regardless of whether they were really healthy, you know, when they first got their COVID infection or have underlying health conditions. And that's, you know, what makes it so difficult to understand is the, the breadth of it and the, the fact that your, you know, starting your baseline health status doesn't necessarily, you know, give you an advantage or a disadvantage. So, you know, we're seeing some of the more common uh, symptoms, which is tiredness. You know, I actually had COVID myself. And although I got over the sort of acute respiratory symptoms within sort of four or five days, I did feel exhausted for a month. And what we're seeing in long COVID, of course, is this is people who still have symptoms three months post-infection. 
they have this ongoing debilitating fatigue to the point where some people can hardly get out of bed. You know, of course, there's gradations in terms of the severity of this. The other common thing we're seeing is, you know, unusual neurological long-term impacts, pain syndromes, and, you know, other kind of unusual symptoms, twitches and ticks and prolonged uh, loss of uh, smell and taste is another one that we also think is neurologically based. Headaches, palpitations, you know, cardiovascular disorders, and also the inability to exercise in ways that they were able to before, obviously related to the fatigue, but also, you know, very specific to you know, in my mind, possibly circulation disorders. We know that blood stasis is a real component of acute COVID infection. And and then, of course, a lot of mental health disorders, depression, anxiety, you know, people who really didn't struggle with depression and anxiety, then, you know, having really debilitating ongoing issues uh, surrounding the, the, the sort of psycho-emotional aspect, which we don't know if that's PTSD. I mean, I think that's definitely a component or whether, you know, it really is something in a different category. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. You know, I'm glad you bring that up because this is something I've been wondering about as well. I don't have a clear answer, that's for sure. But it seems to me that the psycho-emotive element that goes with this virus is not to be taken lightly. And, and the reason I say that is, is there's a couple of reasons. Number one, this is the first virus that we've had that came along with social media. When I was a kid growing up, I think it was 1969, year of Woodstock, we had the Hong Kong flu. Hong Kong flu was a worldwide pandemic, killed lots of people, didn't have social media. We had the summer of love. With the assassination of Martin Luther King, we had Woodstock. That's what happened when that big pandemic was in town. But COVID comes along, and we've got a completely different way of relating to this thing because we've got this 
external portion of our nervous system, let's call it the internet. And the you brought up the term PTSD. It, it seems like the self-inflicted PTSD that we gave ourselves around it might really come into play. This is, to me, it's so interesting with this virus because, and I still hear this from people if they get COVID, even a mild case, they go, well, I don't know where I got it. And, and they feel like they are somehow bad people because they got it. It's like, oh, I got COVID. It's like, I'm somehow an inferior human being because I got it. And I wonder how that might play into, not to mention the lockdown and everything else, how that might play into the long COVID scenario. Have you got any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, sort of see that, you know, we've had friends who we found out like a year later they actually had COVID, but they described difficulties at the time they had COVID, but they never actually said they had COVID, you know, so yes, yes, I agree with you. But, you know, in terms of thinking about longer term psycho-emotional aspects of having had COVID, I really think that I can only imagine living alone and having something that could potentially kill you, how incredibly frightening that would be where you don't want to go to a clinic or a hospital because they're overloaded and that could, you know, you might not get any, you know, help. And then just being alone in your apartment or, or your home. So I think that is deeply traumatizing in it in and of itself. The other thing we know about COVID is that people spent were very isolated. And I think that is also very traumatizing, once again, if you live alone. Now, conversely, for people that don't live alone, we know that parents were put into really difficult sets of circumstances where they had suddenly all of their children at home, they're trying to hold down a job, they're meant to be on Zoom calls, their work life and work circumstances thrown into chaos as was it was for most of us where there was this sudden complete change of circumstances and you had to reorganize how your whole system worked in your profession and, and in the workplace and it was you know definitely just all of us riding on the seat of our pants and living from day to day but i can only imagine what that was like for people that had children that they were trying to cope with and, you know, these job commitments. And we know that, you know, a lot of people in the midlife are the sandwich generation. So they may well have also had parents who they were very worried about, who they couldn't visit, who were isolated, perhaps in, you know, some of these facilities where there were very significant, you know, numbers of deaths. I think that yeah, it was social media, but I also think circumstantially for so many people, it was probably deeply traumatizing. And, you know, I don't think you recover easily from that. It takes time, especially if you actually got sick yourself and were coping with, you know, physical disability on top of everything else. Are you part of any studies at this point on looking at long COVID? No, um, I'm not actively engaged. You know, there I have uh, several collaborators who have submitted grant applications, and I would imagine that, you know, those will be successful. It's early days, I think, you know, that's one of the problems with the research. It really lags behind. I wish we had the evidence now and could really 
get much better access to East Asian medicine for people struggling with long COVID. You know, it really, by the time we get these projects funded, the projects actually get undertaken, the results get published and disseminated. You know, it's, it's a multi-year process. Yes. Well, again, this is, this throws a little spotlight on the benefit and power of our medicine, because even without research to prop ourselves up with, we can still use our differential diagnosis. We can still look at a person's constitution. We can see if they've got some stagnation or some weakness or some phlegm or whatever and work with what we see, which is really how we're going to do it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, I'll be talking with a group of probably mainly biomedical uh, healthcare providers next month. And, you know, what I'm, the angle I'm taking is saying, look, here, here are some of the common symptoms that we see for long COVID. And here is the evidence of the effectiveness of acupuncture principally for these particular things like, you know, fatigue, headaches. There's been some great research on Gulf War syndrome, which is, you know, has some similarities showing that acupuncture is effective. Different types of neurological conditions, mental health. I mean, all that evidence is out there. Okay, you know, those conditions didn't occur as a result of participants having COVID, but the symptomology is very similar. So I think we've got to right now leverage the research evidence that we already have. And that's one of, as I've said before, the strongest ways that we can get acupuncture into the mainstream is by always leading with the evidence. For sure, that is something that will be of interest to our patients and and the general public. The thing that I like about hearing you talk about using acupuncture for treating long COVID is acupuncture is easy to deliver. You don't have to get people to take herbs. That can be a challenge. Acupuncture can be administered several times a week, depending on your clinical model. People get pretty quick results from acupuncture, generally speaking. It's it's a way to go through a couple of cycles of diagnosis and treatment in a short amount of time and see if you're on the right track or if you need to pivot to something else. It's one of the great things about acupuncture. Yeah, absolutely. And also, of course, there are low-cost models, you know, so we've really uh, made some strides in accessibility with the advent of community acupuncture, which, you know, for many people makes acupuncture possible when it never was before. But, you know, we don't want to get off track here, but of course, payment is a huge problem. I think we would see much higher levels of usage of acupuncture if there was better payment systems, be it private insurance or through Medicare and Medicaid. It's a, it's a double-edged sword, I, I know, and I, I'm very um, open and in agreement with all the arguments against that and the impact that it will have on our medicine and the way it's practiced. It's, it's, it's a really tough argument, but you've got to counterbalance that with the poor accessibility and especially for the underserved. It's a really big conversation right now. You and I are recording this at the very, very end of January. Um, actually, by the time this airs, there will, there will have been at least one conversation where we're looking at things like educational models, where the profession might be going, this kind of thing. I think we're 
I think we're in the, well, not early days, but we're, I'd say we're in the middle of really looking at, well, what is our profession? How do we get our medicine out to people? Through which channels, with what models, what kind of licensure do we need? It's a very, well, you know, that, that, that old thing in Chinese about uh, the characters for crisis are the characters for danger and opportunity. And it, it's true. It actually is. Weiji. I think we're there. It's, it, it's kind of reassuring to hear you bring it up in this conversation. I think this is, and I'm glad we've got this on the podcast, this is a conversation I think we need to have amongst ourselves. I know a lot of people want to, you know, go into that integrated model, and there's a place for that. Um, I think I've been at this long enough. I feel more like a tradesman than a doctor at this point. I wonder if there's ways of taking acupuncture out into the world. There's the community model. I wonder if there's other models that we can also use. I think this is a tremendous, potentially tremendous time for creativity and would would love to get your thoughts because you've done some work with getting, uh, looking at how acupuncture is used in underserved populations. Are there some other ways that we can perhaps, how do I say this? plant acupuncture into the ecosystem of medicine in the modern world? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a big question and a lot of thoughts go through my mind. I, but at the same time, I feel very cautious because it's very um, sort of sensitive topics. Very sensitive. Are you kidding? Yeah, like, like be careful. This thing could blow up in your face. Sensitive, sure. It, yeah, exactly. And you, you know, even contemplating making some suggestions, you know, I know there will be people who think that that's, you know, a really bad idea. And I understand the the opposition. I, I also think that one of the things that, and I, I think we're all kind of aware of this, but nobody's really figured out how to make it better, which is that as a profession, we're not very cohesive. We don't readily come together and sort of all get behind kind of the party line and make a decision about what's best for us and then move forward as a, you know, a single-minded group. And I think that's good because it maintains variety and different opinions, but it also weakens us because we don't speak with a single voice. And also when we compare ourselves to other professions, be it the chiropractors or the physical therapists or other biomedical licensed professions, that's kind of what they do. And unfortunately, that's kind of the way the world works, where you decide on a plan as a profession and then you go in and you start getting political and you lobby to push through the mechanisms that are needed to support that. So I think you're absolutely right when, you know, we've got to decide what is the game plan and we've got to be sufficiently in agreement such that people feel like they can get behind that. Well, this will be interesting. Uh, yes, on one hand, we're like crabs in a bucket. So good luck with any change on that. Like you said, we're a very diverse group of people and different and diverse in terms of practice. But I remember when I was in Chinese medicine school, reading uh, the unshold version of uh, the Nanjing 
which is fabulous because, you know, it, it's got the short quote of the difficulty and then an answer. And then you'll get like three to eight pages of commentary of doctors arguing with each other over the centuries. So in some ways, Chinese medicine is built through argument. It's built through differences. And, and I get it in the modern moment. There is a perspective where we could like close ranks and present a united front. This is us. But, you know, it kind of comes back to, well, who's us? Who do we include in us? And it looks to me like it's more a bunch of different coalitions than an us, which is fine. Look, the most, the most stable and healthy ecosystems are very diverse. So I don't have any answers for this, but I, I, I think I'm, I'm getting better at describing the challenge and the problem that we're facing. We all want the diversity within our trade. At the same time, how do we go forward in a world that presents united fronts? Yeah, I mean, um, we could decide that we, you know, we don't want to get around some sort of common idea, which will kind of be a probably a, a dilution of what all the people, all the different groups would ideally like. But then as long as we're okay with what the effect that will result in, which, you know, in my mind, it wouldn't be terrible. I, you know, it is kind of pretty much aligned with the history of Chinese medicine and everything that it has been and transformed into, you know, over the, the many centuries. But the, I think the biggest concern is that other people, other providers, you know, as we know, we're constantly under threat will really kind of move in on our territory. And, and I think in a way that's the biggest concern associated with payment. Once there's a payment stream and it's seen to be viable as, a, as an income stream, you know, we haven't seen anything in terms of people moving in on our territory. I mean, once there's, you know, viable money sources available, you know, it's going to be a different playing field. And I think we need to be ready for that, at least just psychologically and emotionally and not be sort of like, oh, my God, you know, like I, <laughs> I didn't sort of think this would happen. You know, I was in a meeting the other day and it really underscored it to me. It was I was in a meeting with a group of academics in my role as associate dean and we were discussing this program and this uh, one particular program is a collaboration between our university and a healthcare system and there was a representative of the healthcare system there and you know there was a lot of debate and discussion around aspects of the program and then I was chatting with this guy afterwards, the guy from the medical system, and he said, oh, you know, it's just so great to be back in academia and so much discussion. And it's just so different from corporate America. And I said to him, corporate America, you work for a healthcare system that's not for profit, right? And he sort of, he saw where I, where I was going with it. And then he said, oh yeah, but you know, we really operate like a corporation. And then I said, well, I said, I heard you say that earlier. And I thought, well, and there it is. So, you know, the, the mainstream medicine functions like a corporation. It's all about the profit. And once they see that acupuncture is 
profitable, they will go to no lengths to find practitioners, whether they're licensed acupuncturists or other professionals that can quickly learn acupuncture, to deliver the intervention to get the payment. Well, we started today with COVID. <laughs> we're ending with a look at our profession and, and some of the hot water that we're in at the moment. And, and I appreciate your willingness to kind of pivot with me and look at this. The beautiful thing about our medicine, as we spoke earlier, we have these wonderful set of principles that are reliable for all kinds of situations. You know, whether it's treating COVID or like figuring out where we belong in the world, I, I suspect, I could be wrong, but it's my working hypothesis, if we keep working with the strength of our medicine, other people might use needles, they might call it acupuncture. I think it would be different than people who practice Chinese medicine from the uh, Chinese medicine point of view. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, and that's kind of what I meant with when I said, as long as we're okay with the consequence, if we don't want to come up with some party line and we want to keep the diversity, then as long as we're okay with how that might manifest in the future, then, yeah, I mean, I'm concerned about the things that you're alluding to, too, that if our medicine is picked up by people that have insufficient training, that it won't be as effective. But And then we'll kind of stay where we are or slightly worse. We, you know, if we keep the diversity within our profession, we don't try to amalgamate ourselves into the party line so that we can better compete, you know, kind of in the marketplace, then... You know, as long as we're okay with that, where that will take us, which, you know, you alluded to before that uh, our medicine in the hands of less people with smaller amounts of training is likely to be less effective, not to mention more unsafe. I mean, most of the adverse events associated with acupuncture have been uh, from practitioners who were not licensed acupuncturists. So that, that's a whole nother piece of it. That's a, yeah, it's a whole different kettle of fish. We'll get into that another day. Yeah, it is. It, right. But um, it, it still will mean that there will be, you know, a very small proportion of the population that access authentic East Asian medicine from practitioners who have received, you know, proper training, which to me, unfortunately, that's not good for equity and inclusion. That's and I always come back to the underserved because, you know, a lot of my and my colleagues' research is with those populations and, you know, you see how beneficial it is for them in part because, you know, the pain, the pain research has shown that people that are in more pain get a bigger benefit from acupuncture than people whose pain is less severe or has been going on for a shorter duration. So in the underserved, you know, we have the pain severity and duration issue. We also have a lot of lifestyle factors and other things that impact their health that are benefited by acupuncture. So, you know, the benefits are really so um, observable and obvious, and it's just so heartwarming to treat that population. I think that's the part that I just always come back to is that it's when we're not going to serve those people. Well, I think we've wandered into some territory here that uh, really merits more discussion. And I think as we 
grapple with these issues. And we are in the midst of grappling with these issues. Bo, I suspect you and I will come back and have some more conversation around that. Yes, that'll be very enjoyable. Thank you, Michael. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a delight and uh, you know, a wonderful reminder that we have something really potent here and uh, we have some responsibility with it. We do. I, you know, I think uh, for me, that's always been an underlying theme in my career is that, you know, it's such a privilege and an honor to be involved with this medicine. And with it comes a significant responsibility that we share with all the members of our profession as a group who are, you know, of the same mind and heart. And that's very powerful. The pandemic showed us something of how our medicine fit and didn't in the governmental and conventional medicine response to COVID. Perhaps research that demonstrates the effectiveness of East Asian medicine in treating epidemic disease might give us more a seat at the table in the future. But then, maybe not. When confronted with novel and unknown illnesses, it's hard to move beyond fear and a default to convention or authority. That said, acupuncture and herbal medicine have been treating the curious sequela of viral infections for a long, long time. So regardless of what conventional medicine has to offer, people will, as they've been doing for quite a while now, seek us out for help with chronic issues like long COVID. Beyond policy and beyond convention, People go looking for solutions when they've been disappointed by other treatment methods. And our medicine has a lot to offer to those with long COVID. And for you doctoral students out there, this could be a rich and useful area of research, especially for herbal medicine. Finally, if you've done the research and you have something interesting to share, please do reach out because I'd love to have you on the podcast to discuss that. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.